Uh, my name is Paul Reese, and I serve as the lead pastor here, and it's just great to see uh, old and new friends, uh, to be seeing the church family gathered here today. So welcome. Let's just pray as we come to God's Word. Father, we ask that you'd give us power with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled to the measure of all your fullness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when lovers talk, there can be a lot of playful banter. Vulnerability, honesty, um, intimacies are shared, innermost thoughts. And you really don't want other people listening into this sort of stuff. It's between the two of you. If people overheard it, they would, they would make fun of it. Most probably to cover up the embarrassment of hearing such intimacies, but all the while longing that someone would feel that way about them. I think all of us long that we would be so deeply loved. And so this morning, I want to give you a warning. We are going to listen in to the intimate chit-chat between two lovers. But what I want to say to you is that if you are a Christian this morning, if you're somebody who has put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you don't have to long that this would be true of you. For this is how God feels about you. This is what the Lord Jesus feels about you. And this morning we're going to consider three three parts of the text this morning. Love talking, love longing, and love warning. And let me just let you know that the first point is the longest. They're not of equal length, so don't despair, okay? The first point is the longest this morning. So let's consider love talking. And so open your Bibles up, please, to Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 1, and uh, have a look at verse 15 there. Uh, listen to the mutual admiration of two people in love. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She says, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. So mutual attraction is very important. We thought a few weeks ago that character counts. But also this mysterious human chemistry of physical attraction is also pretty key, I think. She's expressed her insecurity about her looks already, but he doesn't see the problem. He just can't help but express how attractive she is to him. He can't take his eyes off her. Oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. And we're going to see, as we work through the Song of Songs, that he's attracted to the whole of her body. So hold on to your seats for the coming weeks. But the special focus this morning is on her eyes. 
your eyes are doves. Now, how are her eyes like doves? Is it, is it her eyelashes that flutter, or is it the way that the whites of her eyes are, are just like white doves? Or is it about how her eyes are kind of a glimpse somehow into her soul, and he just loves the, the real her? We don't know what it is, but he's captivated by her eyes. And, you know, the great singers and songwriters are always captivated by eyes, aren't they? Elton John sang about blue eyes. Van Morrison about the brown-eyed girl. And uh, there's something about eyes, isn't there? To gaze into another person's eyes is, well, you're either an optician or you're in love. And so, to married couples of many years, if your relationship is going stale, the pathway back to intimacy is to take time to sit together and to look into each other's eyes and remind yourself about what you find beautiful in that person. Stopping from the busyness of life, sitting opposite each other, maybe over a meal, maybe some candlelight, look into each other's eyes and talk. Don't take each other for granted. Husbands, when did you last admire your wife? And when did you verbalize that to her to express your admiration? And wives, notice that she returns the admiration. Uh, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. Or, oh, how truly lovely. Now, you're going to have to find some compliments you can say with a straight face, but go for it. Taking time to express genuine affection and appreciation is something that will build up your spouse and strengthen your relationship. And it's so tragic to hear married couples tearing into each other, um, pulling each other down with their words, especially in front of other people. So notice she says in verse 16, our bed is verdant. He says, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firsts. See, this physical attraction and love is supposed to build towards something solid and long-lasting. I mean, are they outside? Are they lying on the grass? Are they looking up into the trees overhead? Quite possibly. But in their love talk, they're beginning to plan a future together. A future where their union will be fruitful. She begins to think about babies and family. How wonderful to see little babies in church. I don't mind them squeaking away. If they're crying their eyes out, do take them out. But I love seeing them, uh, hearing them squeak away. She's thinking about babies. She's thinking about family. He's thinking about the house he's going to have to build uh, for his family, the, the, the roof above their heads to protect and secure their future together. And here in, the, in their love, they're kind of back in the Garden of Eden, aren't they? Dreaming of fulfilling their God-given mandate of loving union and fruitfulness. This is God's intention for our powerful sexual desires. There's not, this is not some fleeting Tinder hookup. This is not a brief sexual encounter of hormonal urges. These are two people dreaming of a lifelong union. 
of building a home and a family and a future together. A house of cedars, a rafters of firs, all built from the attraction and admiration of beauty and love that they find in each other. Oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. Uh, James shared earlier that uh, George Haig died last Monday. And I had the privilege of spending 40 minutes with George on the Friday before that. And um, I used to love my visits with George and our conversations would invariably turn to two topics. And they did on that last conversation on that Friday. Topic number one, he spoke about Ellen, his wife, who passed away a year before. He'd asked the Lord to provide for him the right wife. And while a Scots guardsman uh, based in Dusseldorf in Germany, the Padre encouraged him to uh, keep an eye on some of the younger soldiers and come to a local dance. And so while he was doing that, there were some girls sitting on their own, and the Padre said, well, go and ask one of them to dance. And so he asked this girl to, to dance. Now, she didn't know any English. He didn't know any German, but they found that they danced very nicely together. And they got hold of an English-German dictionary, and they began to communicate. And that dance turned into a 58-year marriage. Beautiful. And right up until the very end, they were so in love with each other. Ellen was the Lord's provision for George. Of that, he was in no doubt. Ellen was everything to me, he told me once more on Friday that Friday. And the only other person who George spoke of even more than Ellen was the Lord. He couldn't stop talking about the Lord. It was the Lord who gave him Ellen. It was the Lord who had loved him. It was the Lord who had saved him. And George just naturally kept talking about the Lord Jesus with, with people he met. He told me of a care assistant who came to, uh, to his house to help him uh, with the various struggles of old age. And, uh, you know, he told her one time when she visited, you are so wonderful to me. You're so kind to me. I just wish you knew my Lord Jesus the way I know my Lord Jesus. He's even more kind. He's even more wonderful. That's George. Just couldn't help himself but talk about the Lord's. For we speak about what we love. And just as a loving relationship is strengthened by admiration and praise, then as Christians, I want to say to us, we shouldn't take the Lord for granted. Uh, fresh joy and delight comes when we take time to consider the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a key way for us to persevere in our Christian lives through the challenges of life is to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says, isn't it? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. Have your eyes gazing on him. He who endured the, the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This is a key insight of the Christian life, isn't it? And delight in who he is. In Julian Hardiman's book, 
um, Jesus' love for my soul. He quotes John Owen, the Puritan of the 1600s, who went on expounding on the Lord Jesus Christ, wrote of Jesus in this way. He is lovely in his person, lovely in his birth and incarnation, lovely in the whole course of his life, lovely in his death, Lovely in his whole employment. Lovely in the glory and majesty. Lovely in all his supplies of grace. Lovely in all the tender care, power and wisdom. Lovely in his ordinances. Lovely and gracious in his uh, vengeance. Lovely in the pardon he has purchased. Altogether lovely. And it's such a joy to turn our gaze upon the loveliness of Jesus Christ and know that this is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, as the Apostle Paul says. And what a wonderful thing to articulate that praise. Beautiful Savior, wonderful Counselor, clothed in majesty, Lord of history, you're the way, the truth, and the life. How we're looking forward to singing that uh, with full gusto. Now back to this love talking in the Song of Songs. After beginning to imagine a future together, we hear once again her anxieties rise up to the surface. So chapter 2 verse 1, she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, this sounds a very positive statement to us because we're used to giving bouquets of flowers with roses and lilies, um, as long as it doesn't make people sneeze, I guess. And um, I think the NIV is following the King James Version, and this has become kind of a famous verse in some ways, so I think they followed the King Jimmy on this. But the Hebrew words are apparently referring not to, to roses and lilies so much as wild flowers that have filled that used to fill the lush valley of of, uh, Sharon. And so what she's saying is this, I'm just a wild flower. I'm just one indistinguishable from thousands of other flowers. Now we thought about her negative assessment about her appearance a few weeks ago, but this is even more fundamentally about her being. She's saying, look, there's nothing special about me. I'm just a common countryside flower, just a lily of the valleys. And even as she's excited by this man and excited about his potential future, she's just plagued with this sense of kind of, well, unworthiness and how ordinary she is. Why would he be interested in a future with me, she's saying. And once again, he is quick to reassure in chapter 2, verse 2, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. A lily, you say? Just a lily? I reckon you're a lily amongst brambles. That's how all the other women look to me compared to you, my darling. You are uniquely attractive. Now, my fellow believer, are you insecure at the thought that the Lord Jesus should feel this way about you? There's nothing special about me, you think? In your own estimation? 
You're pretty ordinary. Actually, if the truth be told, more like a weed than a wildflower. A wildflower would be a nice thing to be. I'm a weed. And maybe you are in the world's estimation. <laughs> but not so with the Lord. For you are loved. He delights in you. You're the apple of his eye. Don Carson wrote a very helpful book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And in it, he describes the five different ways that the Bible speaks about the love of God. And I'm just going to explain to you four ways that the Bible speaks about the love of God. Number one, that the love of, it, the love of God, it speaks about that in terms of his Trinitarian being, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. How there's a unique love of how the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. There's that Trinitarian love. Then it talks about God's providential love and care of the creation that he has made, his provision and care for all his creation. Thirdly, uh, to use Don's typical language, God's salvific stance towards the fallen world. What he's saying is that actually God has this heart of saving love for a lost world. He has a compassion for a lost world. Think about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so we can rightly say to every person that, that we meet that God loves you. Because God created that person, God's sustaining that person, and God doesn't long for the death of anybody. He, 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 is, he has done an incredible thing in sending his son. His, his salvific stands towards a lost world. But you know what? There's a fourth way that, that the Bible speaks of love. And that is God's particular, effectual love towards his elect. Now, this is fancy words, but Just think about what the Lord says to Israel in, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy. He says this, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept his oath he swore to the forefathers and brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God save them? Well, because he loved them. Out of all the nations of the world, he chose to set his love on Israel. Why? What was it about them? Because they were good looking? No, it's not about them. They were the fewest of... No, he just loved them because he loved them. He chose to set his love on them. And when we come to the New Testament, what we discover is God's particular elective love of the Christian church. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. And I think the New Testament makes it clear that the elective saving love is not just a generic thing um, that God would save a group of people but didn't know who that group were, but it's personal and individual that God sovereignly chose to set his love on particular people. And you 
also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Why did you hear the gospel? Well, God in his grace put someone in your life that shared the gospel with you. And you were included when you heard that message of truth. And if you're someone today who's come to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to say to you that you only get to this point because God the Father has chosen that you come to Christ. As Jesus says in in John chapter 6, all those the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never drive away. I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Listen to this. Before the creation of the world, in love, he predestined you. He predestined you. If I had time, I'd go around each one of you. He predestined you. Now, before our brains rush to all the questions about human responsibility and divine sovereignty and the justice of all this, uh, would you just rest in this marvelous truth? It's there in the Bible. God has chosen to set his love upon you, specifically you. Now, maybe uh, there are some women out in the world who think it's not fair that I chose to set my love upon Shiona and marry her. I don't know of them, to be honest. Um, When I promised to forsake all others to set my love on Shiona, she wasn't standing there thinking, oh, it's not fair and all the other girls. She wasn't feeling guilty that I'd picked her. Would you just soak in this truth this morning? The Lord Jesus has chosen to love you. He laid down his life for you. To save you. And secured your future with him in his house forever. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will enter the house of the Lord forever, says King David. And that's true for you in Christ Jesus. Wonderful. That's the confidence that the believer can have because you know that you specifically are loved with an everlasting love. And I think we struggle to believe this. I've just, I've just, I've just, I'm just, there's nothing about me. I'm common. I'm a weed. He loves you. And reassured by the affirmation of his love, where he said, well, a lily? Well, like a lily, among thorns is my darling, among the young men. She responds in verse 3. Well, you're, you're like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Remember earlier in the song, Her mother's sons were angry with her. They made her work in the vineyards underneath the blazing sun that burned her skin. But he is like an apple tree whose branches and leaves provide protection and shade over her. And in a hot, thirsty day, how delicious to taste 
and enjoy a juicy, sweet apple. And that's what it feels like to her to be with him. He refreshes her and delights her. And is this not the delight for the Christian believer? When you come under the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ and to know the provision of his amazing grace that keeps coming. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now that's love talking. Let's move quickly to consider these next two points. Love longing in chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. So she is so delighted in him that she just longs for the day when they can be together as husband and wife. Remember the start of the song? It starts with this phrase, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And now 2 verse 4, let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. She wants him to lead her down the aisle and on to the wedding feast. He has conquered her affections. And she wants to stand with him, to be publicly identified with him. His banner is like a military term. It's the military colors, the ensign of the army. And she wants to stand under his banner of love and be uh, identified with him, that to be unfurled over her heads. They belong together. And she longs for the time when it's all official. And she wants him so bad that she's faint with love. Her longings and desires have made her feel weakened and tired. The day has not yet come, but she longs for the day when verse 6 will be true. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Now many poets and singers have talked about this love sickness and longing. And in the book of Psalms, we find the same longing to meet with God. Listen to Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Or in Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now, the only reason that we might not feel that we can express those words is because we've forgotten how glorious and beautiful is our God. For to see clearly the Lord in his holiness and in his glory and majesty, we would also declare that one day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And we too would set our hearts in this life on it being a pilgrimage whose destination is to stand before this glorious God. And there's lots of reminders on the way of the glory of God. Look at the, well, the cherry blossoms beginning to fade on the trees, but hasn't it been glorious? Who could conceive of such a glorious thing? Well, think about the beauty and the glory of the God who made the cherry blossom. Uh, just think about the delicious, sweet apple that you're going to taste. Think about that cool glass of water on that rare hot day in Edinburgh. 
you still remember it. I know it's infrequent, but you remember how delicious that is. And as you taste deliciousness and you are refreshed and you see great beauty, would you use it to turn your eyes to the Creator God whose beauty and glory and holiness far exceeds it all? But He's the originator of it all. And if this stuff is so good, what's it going to be like to be in His presence? To see Him. Uh, in the original language, the Hebrew, the, the banquet hall is literally the house of wine. Lead me to the house of wine, she says. Uh, and if you recall, there was that mini tragedy uh, for a couple and a family on a wedding day in Cana of Galilee. And he, they ran out of wedding, which was a total social embarrassment to not be good hosts on your wedding feast. It would have been an absolute tragedy if Jesus had not been there. But what a joy, what a delight when Jesus is at your wedding day. No problem for Jesus. Gallons of water are turned into gallons of wine. The best wine. Lead me to the house of wine, she says. What will it be like to see him? The Lord of Lords, whose banner over us is love. Now, well, that's love longing. And then the love longing turns into a love warning in chapter 2, verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Her longing... For sexual fulfillment with him has left her so weak and lovesick that she warns her bridesmaids about the power of love. Don't want a man as badly as I want him until it's the right time. Don't awaken this until it's the right time, she warns them. In the words of Freddie Mercury, this thing called love, I just can't handle it. This thing called love, I must get round to it. I ain't ready. Crazy little thing called love, he's saying. This sort of erotic love can feel so overwhelming that she charges them most solemnly, don't wake it up. Don't stir it up until it's the right man at the right time in the right place which is marriage. The problem we've got in our culture today is that advertising and movies and dramas are forever trying to stir up our erotic imaginations, are always trying to provoke and awaken this inside of us. But detached from a, a lifelong commitment, sex can become destructive, negative, twisted, and debased. Because sexual desire is so powerful. And actually, that power is designed to be entirely positive by the Creator. Sex is the God-given body language of an exclusive, lifelong commitment. It's the glue that can hold two awkward individuals together in the challenges of making a home 
of having babies, of raising children, seeing teenagers launched, and just going through the challenges of life together. This is the body language, the glue that holds this together. This is what this crazy little thing called love is actually all about. Johnny Rotten, the former uh, frontman of the punk band The Sex Pistols, gave a recent interview at the age of 65 where he talked about how he's taking care of his wife, Nora, who has advanced Alzheimer's. This is what Johnny Rotten said. When I make a commitment, it's forever. And I stand by that, and I'm very proud to do the best I can for her. We've been together now 45 years. We're not going to change anything. You know, what's an illness between true friends, man and wife, lovers, whatever you want to call it? We're a proper pair of people who love and adore each other. That's the power of love, isn't it? Johnny and Nora, George and Ellen, and that's the love that the Lord Jesus has for you. And he's leading us into the eternal banquet hall where Christ is the banner of love over our lives. Oh, the love of my Redeemer, never failing, come what may. He has purchased my forgiveness and he's washed my sins away. Are you delighting in that today? If you don't know what I'm talking about, talk to me. I've got the best news on the planet for you.